I'm Felina. And I'm Summer. And you are listening to Broken Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Hey, broken people. Hello. <laughs> Felina has some things to say. <laughs> this is uh, for uh, everybody's uh, sake in the timeline. Uh, this is the uh, uh, following uh, Monday after the Kavanaugh uh, shit show that is <laughs> occurring in our nation yes. right now. And so by the time this airs, who knows what will have come of it. Uh, but I did have the, uh, opportunity to watch the, uh, the, the statements made, made by both Ford and Kavanaugh. <laughs> and, uh, I just, I have some things to say about it because it was infuriating, uh, and, and ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Ford is, com- I mean, she's completely believable. She has no ulterior motive that anybody can really find, yet it doesn't stop the entire Republican Party from being ugly to her. I mean, there are there were a few people that were respectful, at least, you know. Uh, Lindsey Graham can go jump off a bridge for all <laughs> I care. A really high one. A really high one with the really hard surface below it. Yes. Um, because, you know, he... he all he could do was talk about poor Kavanaugh and this this poor man. Right. This poor man. And, and, yeah. and <laughs> you know, I know their theory is that, well, maybe this happened to you, Dr. Ford. Mm-hmm. But your your memory must be hazy. It, maybe it was someone else. I, I like the, I never expected the all white guys look the same defense. <laughs> yeah, that's really what they have going on, yes. isn't it? All white guys all look white alike. All guys look the same. It could be this yeah. guy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, but you know her her testimony was compelling and sad and genuine and you could tell it was hard for her to relive it and uh, and yeah I mean the Republicans you know all they can do is is really see Brett Kavanaugh as the victim and that just really blows my mind. I feel like it's not even that they believe he didn't do this. No, because of the defenses, I think it's just this is where their priority is whatever their political right but like how are they women are disposable how are they so dumb that they're gonna make him poor brett like how i don't understand it's setting up to defend themselves with their voters well and with their own sexual misconduct maybe most likely Uh, (laughs) most likely i mean let's be honest it's true uh, they're entitled to everything, including whatever woman they want at whatever yes. moment they want. Whether we like it I or not. I cannot remember the name of the senator. Some old white dude, you know, this could be any of them. That could be. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was listening to NPR this morning, and uh, oh no 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 no, uh, John Oliver, mm-hmm. and uh, this particular senator's uh, when asked what he thought of of uh, Dr. Ford's testimony, he said, well, "I thought she was rather attractive." Fucking hell. Yeah, she was pleasing. She was pleasing. Pleasing. That's the That's word he used. That's what you about an escort. Not <laughs> That's what the word he used to, dis- to explain um. this woman who came up to share her sexual victimization with the, it, she was I attractive just, and please wow. he's missing the fucking these men are missing the fucking do you think they're point. missing the point or are yeah, they no, deliberately really, minimizing her no i really think he's stupid like okay. i really think half of them I, I mean i think maybe some of them are but i don't think they have the capacity to I, really understand i noticed it. even in in media in the reports there's always referring to him as judge kavanaugh 
which is, you know, his title. But then they'll call her Ms. Ford instead of Dr. Ford. Doctor. Yeah. And, hmm, <laughs> that's a problem. Well, I mean, I'm, and I'll get to this, but I mean, I was recently ranting about my fight to be seen as an equal. And that's what we oh, all... Oh, please tell that story. For, oh, okay. oh, before you do, I do want to say, as far as Kavanaugh goes, even if there was some, by some bizarre miracle, some inequivocal evidence that these women are lying. The way he behaved in that hearing yes. does not make him... If you behaved that way in his courtroom, he would throw your ass in jail. Yes. Yes. I, I, I mean, from the very beginning of his introduction, where he's, he's reading from his letter, it was almost like he didn't know how to have real emotions, so he was interjecting emotion in really weird places. Oh. Like, I was listening to him talk about Getting, he was getting so emotional about, I used to calendar, because my dad calendared, and he journaled, so I journaled growing up. And he was becoming proclaimed and having to take drinks, water, and uh, almost... See, this and is I what thought, I've missed by reading, yes. reading the written transcripts and I thought, I thought, well, did his dad die or something? Right. Like, is that why he's... No, his dad's alive. You know, and then he was, he was getting he's emotional. He's a really terrible actor. Yes, and then he was getting emotional about recounting... His, uh, his friend Tobin's house where they used to have, his dad used to plan workouts for us. And me and Judge, we would work out. Like, what? <laughs> Why, are Why are you getting that? emotional about, like, it was clear that the man didn't understand, like, how to have real emotions. And so, like, somebody probably along the way had said, hey, you need to come across as a human. Right. So... You know, shows some some, you know, so that you have feelings. Of course, then later on, you just see him like yelling. Right. I mean, he's like when judges or when the senators were trying to ask him questions, like, "Have you ever been, you know, so drunk that you blacked out?" Well, have you? You know, like that's not what an innocent person says in response to that question. You <laughs> it's know? a yes or no question. And yeah. You, and you answer it with a question. Yeah, and he was doing that to women in particular, mm -hmm. which was really ugly and right. and transparent of who he is and anyway he's a piece of garbage and I will lose complete faith in our country if we end up having him on a Supreme Court uh, but anyway last election pretty much did that to yeah me, I know so. I heard I keep saying that and it just keeps getting worse I don't know but <laughs> I mean but yeah I mean today. it's and and I don't know why this I mean this just struck a chord with me but I was so pissed this weekend my dad who is a Mexican man He's a citizen of this country now, and one of the proudest Americans I know, and one of the hardest working men I've ever known in my life. Uh, but he came to visit, he's retired, he came to visit me and my daughter, his granddaughter, and we went to have breakfast at a local diner. And I have extremely long hair. My hair is down to my butt. Uh, beyond that, it's very long. And so we, we got our table, and we sat down, and I'm conscientious of my hair getting into everything because it's always everywhere. And so when we sat down, I was careful to look behind me. There was no waitress. There was nothing going on behind me. I put my hair up in a ponytail, and we continued on with our breakfast. Well, as we were finishing up, there was another, uh, another table that was leaving, and there was an older white gentleman uh, who felt the need to come over to our table, and he sort of leaned in and, and whispered in my dad's ear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad was just kind of shaking his head with a confused look on his face. And the guy, and then my dad was like, okay. And then he just walked off. And mm -hmm. I was like, what was that all about? <laughs> what just happened? What just happened? 
And my dad tells me that the the guy said, you need to tell your, quote, lady friend. <laughs> this is my father, I by the way. This. You need to tell your lady friend to not mm. put her hair up in public because her hair got in my food. Mm. Well, Mr. Bullshit White Man, first off, I'm sitting right fucking here. Right. So if you've got something to say. Talk to me. <laughs> you can say it to my face. I'm almost a 40-year-old woman. Like, you don't need to go through the man at the table, for one. Right. You know, but but thanks for feeling like you needed to have him mansplain that to me because I my feeble little mind wouldn't understand wouldn't it. Right. You know, and secondly, uh, you're a liar. Like, I conscientiously, you know, being self-aware, like, put my hair up because I know it gets into things and I was in a public place and I put it out of the way after looking to make sure that no one was behind me carrying any food. So you're just a big fucking liar. Right. It didn't get, if there was hair in your food, it didn't come from me, you know? Uh, And if that's an issue, maybe you should just not leave your house. Like, maybe you've just become so old and crotchety that you should just (laughs) not leave your home anymore. And (laughs) third off, you feeling like you needed to tell my dad, a Mexican man, how to control his woman, which, by the way, again, creepy that you just thought he was my boyfriend. I'm his daughter. Whatever. Uh, weird. But anyway, uh, the fact that you thought he didn't know how to control his woman speaks to what you think of him as a, as a Mexican man, because, you know, obviously he doesn't know how to operate in society either. So you felt the need to instruct both of us on how to behave in public. And I... I was so livid. I mean, my nine-year-old daughter was sitting at the table, and I was like, fuck that. (laughs) What did she say? Uh, She was just like, why are you mad, Mom? (laughs) I was like, because men should not tell you what to do or how to be or how to behave in public. That's inappropriate. That's not their place. You don't need to listen to that shit. Like, I was getting really mad. (laughs) This is probably why my dad didn't tell me till the man left. Probably. The establishment, what he, he said. Anticipated that. My dad knows me. <laughs> yes. He he knew it was going to make me pretty mad, uh, and it did. And I felt a little better after ranting about it online, as one does. Uh, but you know, it's just exhausting because I. I mean, we've talked about our backgrounds, both mm-hmm. of us. You have four degrees. I was one of four Hispanic women in. OU Law School at the time and all three classes that were there and you know my dad's an immigrant and he didn't even get to graduate from high school Mm -hmm. you know and I and I've had to work my ass off and sometimes you know I think I I had lots of reasons for wanting to get a law degree but one of them was so that my opinion would matter as much as a man's yes and that's bullshit that I have to get some letters behind my name for my opinion to matter as much as some white dude who may or may not even have a fucking GED. Right. You know, but just because he has a penis mm-hmm. and is perhaps white, then his opinion matters more than mine. He's smarter than I am. You know, he he knows how the world works better than I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm, I'm so tired of it. It's <laughs> so you, exhausting. Have you ever been at any of the firms you've worked at assumed to be the assistant because you're the woman? Oh, yeah, yes, all the time. I hate that. That makes me... Oh, I went to a deposition a couple of weeks ago. And yeah. Are you brand new at the firm, honey? I'm like, no, I'm not. Yes. I mean, I'm a brand new lawyer. I wasn't brand new at the, at the firm, but I'm not a brand new lawyer. Right. You know, and uh, but that's okay. You know, I've decided. I've talked to my awesome attorneys that I work with, or who who are two older white dudes that happen to be cool as shit. Yeah. And, and shout out to all the men in both the music industry and in the legal field who recognize that we have to deal with this shit right. 
and see the inequality and uh, you know help us take a step forward because I, I can sit here and bitch all day but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some of the awesome men that have come along in my life who yeah. who do recognize that and I mean my, my bandmates like Craig Casey my guitarist like he's fucking awesome he's like the biggest hardcore feminist man I've ever known okay. I love him for that but uh, <laughs> I don't remember where I was going I was just it's really okay. it's just really exhausting <laughs> it is uh, but no I'm going to use it to my advantage that these old white men think that I'm dumb and and, you know, just because I'm, you know, look young and I'm pretty, you know, well, that's fine. Just wait till you see me in a courtroom. Right. You know, just wait. That's That's, that's fine. You they can go ahead and un- go ahead and underestimate all day long. That's fine. I'll use that to my advantage. So anyway, <laughs> that's my story. <laughs> the fuck Brett Kavanaugh's, the moral and all the all Brett of Kavanaugh's the of the world yes. and all the men who think you need to mansplain. Tell me how to live my life, what to do with my goddamn hair. Fuck you. <laughs> anyway. And with that, we're going to call our male guest. <laughs> Today we're going to have Jeff Hancock. We're actually calling a landline, people. Did you know those still existed? Holy shit. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Are you there? Yep, I'm here. Hi, this is Summer. How are you doing? Uh, how are you? Good. And I have my co-host, Felina, here. Hi, Jeff. It's nice to meet you. Hi, Felina. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Sure, no problem. Jeff, I, I met him, I don't know, a dozen or more years ago online in adoption um, message boards when I was getting, we were getting ready to become um, foster parents, and so we were talking to people, and, and he's taught me a lot, and we've kind of become friends over the years, and he's an artist, and so I thought I'd ask Jeff to come tell us his story. Awesome. <laughs> I want to hear it. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the same thing that that I told uh, at a uh, conference I was at a number of years ago. Okay. I uh, I got to introduce um, Daryl McDaniels to um, a conference room. Okay. After uh, after receiving a humanitarian award for my volunteer work uh, with a local adoption agency, mm-hmm. and I told people, you know, if you told me a couple of years ago that I would be standing here today receiving this award, I would have told you you're nuts because I wasn't adopted, and. Um, so for me to find out in 2007, that I was uh, just a few days short of my 42nd birthday that I was, ad- that I was adopted, it was really a shock. Oh my gosh! Wow. And, um, it was it was it was hard. It still is hard. Right. Um, and and so um, that started me in this all, and I kind of jumped in quickly. Um, I started in with my search the same day I found out I was adopted, and I was kind of shell shocked because I didn't realize the search how hard it is they don't they don't tell you that on tv right they don't um they don't tell you you know that, that the system is is lined up against you and how hard it is to search and even harder to find mm-hmm. and um and once you find you know that there's not the end um it's just, just the beginning mm-hmm. and so that was kind of how how it went for me during those years uh, it took me about six years to find to find my mom's family my mom had died before i even knew i was adopted um, took me about another six months after that to, uh, to find my dad. Wow. So where are you from, Jeff? I grew up near Buffalo, New York. Okay. And, and where are you where are you living now? I live closer to Rochester now. I see. And so you grew up near Buffalo with your adoptive parents? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so well, can you kind of give some background on how it's, it was possible to not know until you were an adult that you were adopted? 
Well, my parents um, covered it up and lied as much as they could about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of things that pointed to me being adopted growing up. And I would say things to try to open the door for that conversation. Uh-huh. Um, kind of like a segue into things. And um, my parents would always change the topic or, um, or not pick up on the clue that I was trying to give them. And then when I was uh, about 20 or 21 years old, um, it was just eating me up alive. Mm-hmm. And I was on the phone with them because I, I was actually away at college. And I said, you know, for the longest time I've always felt that I'm not really yours, that I'm adopted. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, um, they, went into a, they went into a frenzy. How I'll old were you when you said that? that? I was 21. 21, okay. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of evidence. Like what? It was, um, well, my... My dad's family is very traditional, very old-fashioned, very conservative. And his mother was a was her his grandparents were German um, immigrants in the late 1800s, so they had this very traditional way about them with things. And my my um, grandma Hancock, for all of her grandkids, made them a handmade quilt, except for me. Oh wow. Um, and so, you know, I always kind of felt that was just kind of strange. Right. And, um, and then uh, there was the family Bible. There's this big, huge, thick, it's like three inches thick, big old German family Bible uh-huh. that has the entire family tree in it, going back, you know, a couple hundred years even. Um, and again, everyone's name was in it except for me. And so those things kind of stuck out to me. And then there was right. the, the big one. The, the, the big one of them all, uh, we used to have a suitcase of old family pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pictures, like, maybe from going way back from my grandparents' youth all the way up to, you know, the 1970s. And um, I remember one time looking through the thing, and there's a picture of me. And I was about maybe a little more than a year old, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no baby pictures of me at all. No, no infant pictures of me, no, no pictures of me younger than 12 or 14 months. But on the back, wow. on this Polaroid picture in pencil, it said, Jeff, our foster son. Oh, wow. Now, uh, when that was brought up, mm-hmm. um, my, my mother quickly said, no, no, that doesn't say foster. That says faster because you grew up much faster than your brother or sister. Wow. Really <laughs> thinking on your feet, Mom. Right? So how old yeah, were you when you were placed with them? Do you know? Um, I was five days old. Okay. And it was for foster care okay. uh, originally. Um, my birth mother did not sign relinquishment papers on me until after one year. And Do you know why? Uh, was she trying to get you back? Yeah, okay. I think so. Yeah. Um, I don't think she wanted to give me up. Right. Um, because she, she was stalling on signing the papers. When I got my non-ID um, from the county, the, the Department of Social Services that placed me, mm-hmm. it, it was like a logbook of all of the different conversations and visits they had with my mother as well as with my, my foster parent family. Mm-hmm. And um, it always talked about how immature and unrealistic my mom was, but never gave any examples of that. Mm. And um, what... As near as we've been able to figure out, because mom wasn't there, you know, to be able to explain it all to us, right? Was that 
My dad was in the Navy during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. We think that she was going to tell him about me when he got back home. And when he got back home in 1966, it was with a wife oh, that he uh-huh. met on the West Coast. They weren't together very long, and um, you know, a matter of weeks. But I think it was during that period of time that I was signed off finally. Uh, I think mm-hmm. she realized that this wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, I also know that she didn't love him at all. And this is your birth uh, mom that you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she didn't love my birth dad. Um, yeah, she just got pregnant. Right. Which at that time, you only had so many options. Right. When you got pregnant, you either got married or you... you know, we could go into the whole <laughs> baby scoop era and forced adoptions and talk all day, but... Right. You know. and, and the thing was, too, with that... Um, my mom was the youngest of 14. Wow. And her older sister, my Aunt Pat, had gotten pregnant. Okay. Um, and was raising a son alone, mm-hmm. who was nine years old when I was born. And at the same time, my Aunt Pat got pregnant again, oh. um, the same time that my mom was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And they had talked about raising us together. And I guess they kind of figured no on that. I don't know how the whole conversation went with it, but um, but both of them wound up relinquishing. And uh, so my aunt, Pat, gave up her daughter, Jennifer, about three months after I was born. Um, and the difference was we were able to find Aunt Pat's, Aunt Pat's daughter overnight, whereas it took me five years. <laughs> but I had a search angel help us look for look for Aunt Pat's daughter um, wow. after I found the family. It was interesting because Aunt Pat had never really discussed um, her daughter with anybody in the family. Mm-hmm. And then when we found them, I met my Aunt Pat because my sister felt that she might know who my father was. Okay. And so, this, when you say your sister, when you say your sister, when you say your sister, do you mean... Uh, my maternal half-sister. Okay. Right. Yeah, my maternal half-sister. Because how many other children so, did, did your mo- your mother have? And when and when you my say mom had two, two, okay, okay. So when you when you're saying mom, you're talking about your birth mom right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so my birth mom um, had two more after I was born. Okay. Uh, they were born eight nine years after me, um, and they never knew about me at all. Right. And so um, so my sister was you know very anxious to find out who my father was because my mom had never talked about me, me or my father or my sister didn't know about me until I found the family. Uh-huh. And uh, my aunt Shirley was the one who who dropped that bomb on <laughs> my sister. <laughs> and uh, so we drove we drove off to Salamanca, New York in the middle of winter in a bad snowstorm so I could meet Aunt Pat and try to pump her for information um, over who my father could possibly be. And she's old, you know, or was old. She's gone now, but she was in her late 80s. Uh, and it was kind of comical because she thought that I was my sister's second husband who she hadn't <laughs> met yet. <laughs> so she she kept referring to me as Rick. And, and uh, Sherry, my sister, says, this isn't Rick, this is Jeff. Well, what's he do to Rick? You know, I haven't met him yet. You got another guy. She goes, no, 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 this is this is not my husband. This is Jeff. His middle name is Alan, Jeffrey Allen. And, uh, and, and my... And says, well, I'm pleased to meet you. And she stops and says, just wait a minute. And she looks at me and she's like, Jeffrey Allen Foster? That was our, our family last name. 
Uh-huh. And uh, I said, yeah. Quezon? Yeah. And then this this little tiny ball of gray hair screams. The blood green screams, throws her arms and legs around me. Oh. And jumping up and down like a teenager. And oh. she goes, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. She said that over and over again. So she takes me by the hand. She's still wrapped around me. Both me over on the couch that's next to me. Um, with her arms and legs wrapped around me. And uh, she's like, hey, I know we just met, but can you do me a favor? And I said, well, yeah, sure. Thinking that you know, she either wanted, to drive, she either wanted to, a ride to the uh, Cellmaker Casino or to the liquor store or something like that. And then she says, I gave up a daughter right after you were born. Oh, wow. And I wanted to, I've always wanted to find her. You think you can help me find my daughter like you found us? And I said, well, I know people who do that sort of thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, 12 hours later, they were on the phone together. So. Oh, that's wow. amazing. Wow. So I have a question just in terms of your timeline. So at 21, you see this picture that says you know, Foster on the back. Now, you, I guess it was a family name, also your situation. Um, uh, but uh, when was it that you finally were confronted with the fact for sure that you had been adopted? How did, how did that come about? Passport application in my birth certificate. It was in um, 2007. And here in Western New York, it's a pretty big deal to cross the Canadian border because we all do it, or at least I used to do it all the time. Um, Bush was still in office, and they were coming up with this this crazy idea that everybody in the United States is going to have to have a passport, and even those in Western New York who routinely crossed over to Canada. And, uh, you know, I had friends over there, and, and we had places that we really liked to go in Canada. And so I wanted to get a passport, so I was ahead of the curve. This regulation was going to come in 2009, and I wanted to be plenty prepared for it. So I started bugging my mom for it. Um, mom was still alive back then. She called every Sunday night to check in on us and whatnot. And, and so for several Sundays, for several weeks, I mentioned to her, Mom, you know, have you found my passport yet? I'm, I'm going to need it. Or not my passport, I'm sorry, my birth certificate. And she goes, oh, you know, I just don't know where it is. Uh, we might have lost that. And I said, well, that's too bad because I, I didn't want to have to spend the money on a new one. She was like, money on a new one? And I said, well, yeah, if you don't have it, then I have to go to New York State and, and get a new one because I have to have it for this passport application. And she was, I could tell there was something in her voice that she was, she was nervous. And so um, three days later, it was a Wednesday, right around the middle of the day, lunchtime, my wife comes home from work. And at that time, I was off on Wednesdays. I was a part-time stay-at-home dad. And I had a really bad bronchial infection. I mean, I had no voice. I had a temperature. It wasn't feeling good at all. And I'm sitting here in the chair, and I see my wife walking up the driveway crying. I thought, oh, crap. She either got fired or I could be really, really sick and whatever I've got, like, you know, <laughs> the terminal. You know, all these thoughts, like, raced through my mind, especially when she walked in the door and said to me, she was, we've got to talk. And I thought, oh, crap. One of us is dying or, you know, something really bad is, is happening. And uh, she goes, you know how... Over the years, you've always felt that you were adopted, and you even had that conversation with your parents at that time. And uh, they told you you were their son, and I said, yeah, I, I won't forget that. And she goes, they lied. 
And I was like, what? And then she was like, yeah, you're adapted. She says, your mom called me at work today. She couldn't bring, she couldn't bring herself to tell you herself. She had to call and tell me at work. Oh my gosh. Wow. And her boss gave her the rest of the day off to come home and, and tell me. And uh, turned out, so everybody at work knows knows my story before I know it. Wow. Wow. The the night before mom dropped her bomb on my wife, my mother had called several other people to get their input on um, how I would react to this. You know, which is a pretty stupid thing because, you know, how, how do you figure I'm going to react? Especially after being lied to and... and uh, Even after and confronting, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, she called, she called my wife's older sister for advice because she knew that my wife's older sister was a counselor. Mm-hmm. Okay, she's not a therapist counselor. She's a career counselor. <laughs> Slightly different. <laughs> Very different. She works at the same community college that I work at. Uh-huh. Well, we work in the same department. And, you know, yeah, she's not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. She helps people pick career paths. She's a career counselor. And so she called up Jean for, for input. Uh-huh. Um, she called up my in-laws for input. Um, these people wow. kind of all swore to secrecy. You know, they're like, well, we can't call up and tell Jeff this as much as we probably should. And then uh, she called oh up my, my aunt God. Ethel, who... That was the best choice of all the people she called up. Uh-huh. She called up Anne and Ethel, and uh, that's her older sister. Uh-huh. She always, even when she was in her 80s, went to her older sister for advice. And Anne Ethel always had my back. She was the kind of person you could never have asked for a better aunt in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, she was wonderful. And um, she was the one who told my mom, she was, well, first of all, Jeff isn't stupid. He probably figured this out long ago. Right, and he's right. just too respectful to have ever said anything to you. <laughs> right. And, uh, wow. You know, Aunt Ethel was, was pretty much on top of it, although I did say <laughs> things about it. Right. But, you know, it was, it was a bad reaction when I brought it up. That was in 1986 mm-hmm. when I asked my parents. And it was bad, and my father said some extremely hurtful things mm-hmm. as, as did my mom and those things resonated with me after I found out in 2007 that I was right and they had been not only lying but they had no reason to be as cruel or sarcastic as they were to me um, on the phone that time and so um, you know that kind of leaves a stain you know it hits you hard enough to put a dent in you did they ever explain why they hit felt like they need to hide it from you. Well, Dad was lucky. He died in 1990 and got to keep the secret to himself. And so he died fully knowing that I would never be told. And I guess when I wasn't around and he was on his deathbed with alone with Mom, he made Mom promise never to tell me. Wow. Why? But the fact that I was uh, the fact that I was going to go for another birth certificate that kind of tipped her hand a little bit. Um, and the funny thing about it, the way New York State operates, I don't have a birth certificate at all. Mine's in a sealed vault in Albany, New York. I can't access it. What I have is something called a transcript of live birth. And can you it's explain like, how that's amend- different? Yeah, it's an amended birth certificate. It does not it doesn't have any information on it that identifies who I really am. Um, all it says it has my it has my birth or it has my um, my adoptive name on it, mm-hmm. 
and it lists my adoptive parents as my parents. Mm -hmm. It does not tell the time or the date or the city or the position, um, no baby footprint on it, none of that kind of stuff at all. It's just a small five by seven piece of heavy stock paper that says I was born. Mm -hmm. And um, so it doesn't qualify for a passport application or really for much else. Um, it doesn't? All the times, no. Um, all the times in my life that I needed a birth certificate, mm -hmm. I fell through the cracks and never actually had supplied one. Um, somewhere along the way, I got into college. Mm -hmm. I got a driver's license. I got um, student aid. I got married. And I never had to produce it. I never had really? to show it. Wow. I don't know how, but somehow or another, I just made it all the way through these things. Interesting. I know um, my girls, their birth certificates look identical. It's an, They're amended, but they look identical to um, the birth certificates of the children I gave birth to, except they have my name as if I gave birth to them. So right. what do yeah. you, <laughs> as an adult adoptee, what do you... What do you think about that? I know there's some strong feelings about that. Well, you know, I think it's a shame that, that there can't be transparency for right. these state vital record departments mm -hmm. with it. If you've got a situation where um, you know, a kid has been fostered and adopted, that there can't be two blanks on the line, one for the birth parent and one for the adoptive parent. And the, the role right. of the adoptive parent is not diminished at all. Adoption. You're raising a kid. Right. You know, you're the parent. You're the mother. You're the father. But we're born underneath a different tribe, and mm -hmm. that should be acknowledged. I I agree with that. I I actually pant ha was having a meltdown <laughs> a few weeks ago because I lost a binder that has our important documents in it, and which I now found thankfully. But it all it had my girls' original birth certificates because I made a point to get a copy of each before the adoption was finalized because once it's final, it's sealed. And mm -hmm. how how difficult mm -hmm. is it to get those sealed records, Joe? It depends on where you live. Right. Um, when I first found out and got into this thing in 2007, there were six states that. Um, there were open access for adoptees to get your original birth certificates. Mm -hmm. Now we're up around 18 or 19, but most of them are partial access ones too. They have what's called these mother may I bills. They uh, will contact your birth mother um, and ask their permission before granting you your birth certificate. Wow. So were you and able to get a passport? I don't have a passport, no. So. Um, I, um, I kind of gave up on the idea because it's such a high-risk thing. It seems um, ridiculous. Yeah, it's expensive to apply for one. It's like 100 bucks or something like that. Um, and at the time, it was soon after I learned I was adopted, a, a couple of years after that, when I was going through my search and doing stuff, I had a, a very serious spinal cord injury. And uh, joblessness, uh, mm -hmm. bankruptcy, things that uh, just made the cost of a passport extremely prohibitive right. for me. And I didn't want to roll the dice on getting one if I'd gotten rejected from the government and would have to start the process all over again. Mm. Um, and so I, I just didn't follow through with it. And then they started up the procedure. I think this was around 2012, maybe, um, if I remember correctly, that New York State came up with 
a smart ID or smart driver's license. So got, it's got a chip in it right. that works in place of a passport for, yeah, an enhanced license. That's what it's called, the enhanced license. Right. And so um, I went for the enhanced license mm. and I knew you were supposed to have your birth certificate for that. And I only had my transcript of live birth. I didn't have a birth certificate. So I went to a, a Department of Motor Vehicles way out in the country, you know, a, a pretty rural one, mm-hmm. at a time when I knew that this office has summer interns working behind the counter. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I waited, I waited until I got the intern, and then I went up. Ah. Um, and... Uh, I was able to get it. <laughs> it was like she didn't give it really a second look. Um, I did keep her distracted in a side <laughs> conversation the entire time. So, um, you know, I got my I got my enhanced driver's license. <laughs> good. Well, good. So I can I can drive to Canada. Okay. And I can drive to Mexico. I can't fly or take boats, but I can drive over, which is all I really wanted to begin with. Mm-hmm. I mean, we live close to the border. And so for me to shoot over to Canada, that's like an hour and a half trip. Okay. So can you tell us what the search process was like? What the what? The search process in finding your family. Oh my God, it was a bitch. Um, (laughs) It was awful. Because no one really knew about me. Mm -hmm. There was no paper trail to follow. Okay. Gosh. There was was nothing I could do to follow for it. And so... um, I registered with all the different various online registries, mm-hmm. and I, I mailed into the New York State Reunion Registry, which was very ineffective. The um, you know, the health department at that time in 2007 didn't feel very obliged to work very hard to match people up through the registry. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, they have a new director now. The new director came in actually, I think, around 2012 or 2013. Mm-hmm with a stronger commitment to, to performing the duties of the office. And um, and so um, I searched and searched and searched. Mm-hmm. And it just had one dead end after another. Right. And in the meanwhile, I got involved with the adaptive rights movement of um, working with legislators and um, trying to unite the adaptive community mm-hmm. into, a, into a force that included birth parents and adoptive parents. Uh, to convince people out there that what we were fighting for was worthy and just. Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of people. And um, we used to have a protest every year at the National Council of State Legislators Annual Summit. And we still maintain a booth there. We have a booth where we lobby lawmakers and try to get them to sponsor bills in their states um, that'll do this. And we've picked up quite a few over the years. We still have an awful fight on our hands. Right. But that's that's the process. So that kind of kept me busy while I was searching because, you know, you can only search and hit dead ends for so long before it really wears you down. Yeah. And um, I spent, you know, I can't even give you an idea how many hours, days, weeks, months I spent going through microfilm at public libraries, uh, trying to look for clues, looking for things like birth announcements, legal notices, mm-hmm. even classifieds, looking for somebody born on such and such a day. And um, one of the things I had heard, but didn't have it in my non-ID yet, because my non-ID did not come when it was supposed to, 
was that my father was in the Navy. And so I was going through every newspaper I could find in Western New York that's, that had servicemen updates in it. And I came down with a number of guys who were in the Navy in 1964, 1965. And I had a list of about 30 of these people written down on a legal pad. My uncle, my birth uncle, was actually on the list, but not my birth father. <laughs> so I was getting close. Right. I was getting, I was getting pretty close at that, at that point. Um, but, um, you know, in New York, when you register with Vital Records for a reunion, they will contact the adoption agency that placed you if you want them to and request that non-identifying information be released to you. And can they you explain what that means? Yeah, I'll say that means. It means that they will open up your folder of your placement and of your birth and, and foster records if you were in the foster care system. They open up the jacket that has all of your information in it from the time you were born until the time that you were adopted. It's got everything in it. And they will go through, photocopy that, and black out anything that will at all help you recognize the person that you're looking for. Yes. And so if your mom's name in there, it's going to be a big black smudge. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they do that to all the information in there. But I didn't get it. I was supposed to get it in 30 days, and I didn't get it. And I contacted the director of, of DSS and asked, you know, how's that coming? For five and a half years, I got the runaround from this wow. lady. Wow, oh my God. We can't find it. We don't know whatever happened to it. There's no record of it. I gotta tell you, in all honesty, she was feeding me a line of bullshit right. for five and a half years. Because the second she retired, and a new director came into that DSS, and I heard about it, and there was a new director, I got, I'll be honest with you, I flipped. Mm-hmm. And um, I lost it, and I wrote a letter. Mm-hmm. And I said, because you have failed so far to supply me with my non-identifying information, I can only assume that you will support me in my fight for unsealed birth certificates in New York State. It's the only fair thing for your office to do. And I said a lot of other stuff in there. And, you know, I didn't make any threats or anything like that. I'm not stupid, but but I um, but I said a lot of things in there. I put a lot of shame and a lot of guilt on this brand new director, <laughs> only in her only in her early twenties. It turned out. And uh, two days after I sent that letter to their department, I got a Federal Express package in the mail. <laughs> wow. Urgent delivery. Um, and it had about 70 pages of information in it. It was wow. my entire non-ID file. They even had a baby picture in there of me. Oh, wow. Um, about, I was about a year old. So it was like a baby picture of me at about a year old. Um, everything was blackened out except one detail. They missed one thing. They had my, um, my birth mom's parents' anniversary. Somehow or another, their, their date of, the, of their wedding was still in my file in the background information buried in all this other information. Uh-huh. One of our search angels who had access to Ancestry.com, paid access to Ancestry.com, took all the information that I had and the dates. And because there's 14 siblings in my mom's family, it was a pretty easy path to follow. Uh-huh. Um, so there was information in my in my package of, of information that said mom was the youngest of 14. She had twin older brothers 
She also had another brother who had gotten in considerable trouble recently. That was the non-ID report. What was written in 1965, 1966 around in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it turned out one of my uncles was involved in a, a grisly murder um, back back around that period of time. My uncle murdered somebody. Mm-hmm. It was um, a, a terrible crime, and I guess people started putting locks on their doors who never had locks on their doors before because they were so scared about this thing. And it was my uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, the twin brothers made sense, and so... The search angel friend of mine was able to go through Ancestry. We got the names. That was a big aha moment when I found out that the family last name was Foster. Yeah. Because I was a foster kid right. in more ways than one. Right, yeah. And it's like, you know, the, the irony of it, that my birth name was right underneath my nose the entire okay. time. Yeah. It, it still kind of cracks me up, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just the one of those little, life's little ironies that, mm-hmm. uh, that happened that way. So um, we took the list of names, and I went straight to Facebook. I thought, if I can find these people on Facebook, they're going to be connected to each other. And they were. And when I realized what a massive family I had found, I have, it's either 51 or 54 first cousins. Oh, wow. On my mom's side alone, and they all knew each other. I had no way of knowing who were cousins and who were siblings. Right based on what came off of Ancestry. I just knew that we were all related. Um, what I also did not know is that my little sister had married and divorced and remarried a guy whose last name was Foster but wasn't related to our family. Well, that's confusing. And so, you know, and she was raised with a different last name. Anyhow, she was oh. raised with her, my, my mom's ex-husband's last name. Oh, okay. So she never went by the last name Foster because our mother didn't after she got married and divorced. And so, um, so she married a foster, and she joked that, you know, her kids were going to be inbred, all that sort of stuff, <laughs> you know, actually related to her family. It's just kind of a coincidence mm-hmm. sort of a thing. So I didn't know who it was. Actually, when I first went into Facebook and was stalking my family before I ever, like, um, contacted any of them, I saw a picture of my cousin Carmel, and I thought, God, she looks like me. Mm-hmm. And, wow. um... And I thought, this has got to be my sister. And so I was, I was sure Carmel was my sister. And it turns out, no, no, she's just my first cousin. <laughs> but um, but th- th- there's definitely a family connection there. And um, I sent a message to all of them on Facebook. One is a very simple, very generic message that could have been taken any number of ways, which is why I did it that way. Uh-huh. I just don't want to come out and say, hi, I'm Kathleen Marie Foster's son. Right. You didn't know about me. Uh, so instead, I, um, I wrote a message saying, hi, um, I'm hoping that you can assist me in finding any living descendants or family members, immediate family members, for Kathleen Marie Foster. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that she died in 1995. Okay. However, um, how did I say it? It's very important for me to um, be able to speak with any one of her siblings or nephews or nieces or children. Please feel free to contact me, you know, either through Facebook or here's my email address or here's my phone number. But please, you know, do this for me. Uh, so that something to that effect. Right. And then the waiting game started. Um, that was on a Saturday afternoon, I think it was. And for the next 24 hours, nothing happened. So I'm pacing around, wishing I could sleep, wishing I could <laughs> eat, you know, just 
just, you know, bouncing off the walls. And then it all happened at once. One person contacted me, and then another person contacted mm-hmm. me. And then before I knew it, I had 20 people on the hook answering, you know, for me, saying, we're, we're working at it, you know, somebody's going to know know her, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. the, the first one I got a response from was actually a person who I'm related to twice. <laughs> um, my adopted dad's cousin's granddaughter is married to my birth mom's nephew. Wow. 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 Yeah, I think my brain broke just now. (laughs) Yeah, my my brain is still trying. I have to go syllable by syllable when I explain that because it is so, you know, confusing. But she's also huge in the ancestry stuff. And so she went into her ancestry, and I was I was on her ancestry list as being Herman Hancock's son from Guam to New York. And then she goes into the Foster's one, where I had added myself through my search angel mm-hmm. to my birth mom's part of the tree. Right. <laughs> so she's like, my God, this guy's been here twice. And uh, so Candy called me up and said, look, um, we've never met. She goes, I'm a Hancock married to a foster. I'm working on this. I asked my father-in-law if he knew you. He said he didn't, but he knew your mother. And he told me to call your Aunt Shirley. And he's going to call your Aunt Shirley, too, and see if she knew anything about you. So I've got all these relatives running around the southern tier of New York calling my Aunt Shirley. (laughs) Aunt Shirley knew about me because my mom lived with her. Um, My mom lived with Aunt Shirley and worked as her nanny. Mm-hmm. Um, when she was pregnant with me. And so Shirley was thrilled. She was like, oh my God, he's finally coming home. And um, and so um, and Shirley called me up. It was a Sunday afternoon. And she was, hi, Jeff. I'm your Aunt Shirley. And uh, she was in tears. And she was now visibly, I don't want to say upset, but mm-hmm. crying, you know. I guess mm-hmm. happy. I hope she was happy. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, but um, we talked on the phone forever, and then she says, she says, well, you have a younger sister named Sherry and a younger brother named Harry, and I'm going to call them and tell them about you and, um, and expect to hear from them soon. Mm-hmm. I never did hear from Harry, and I never will hear from Harry, and I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, but I did hear from my sister. Mm-hmm. And um, my sister was shocked. She knew something big was was coming through because um, my aunt has never sent my cousin over to pick up my sister and bring her over to my aunt's house before. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Uh, my sister, my cousin Irene was sent over to my sister's house to pick her up and say, um, your aunt Shirley and Uncle Bill need to talk to you right away. Mm-hmm. And here it is, you know, it's a Sunday afternoon. She's minding her own business, watching football, playing with her kids and whatnot. Right. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, she's in my, my aunt Shirley's living room. And uh, the second she walked in, Uncle Bill, who was kind of a matter-of-fact kind of a guy, mm-hmm. uh, looks at my sister and says, you better sit down. <laughs> 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 and so, <laughs> so she sits down, she's like, She's afraid that one of them is dying because they both have been in battles with cancer before and, oh, yeah. and whatnot. And, uh, and so Shirley says, there's something you need to know that we've never told you before. She says, but you have an older brother. And we didn't know if he was ever going to look for us, if he ever wanted to find us. But mm-hmm. he has found us oh, wow. and, uh, and wants to know us and wants to know you. 
And, and my sister just looked at her, she was like, Jeff Hancock's my brother? <laughs> and uh, and uh, she's like, how did you know his name? She's like, he sent me a message on Facebook. Uh, she was like, I couldn't understand what he was getting at. And it scared me because mom's been dead for so long. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so she, she freaked out and deleted her Facebook account. <laughs> and, uh, and went right back online and started it right back up again. Uh-huh. But she called me, she called me from her house about an hour later mm-hmm. and, uh, apologized. And she's crying on the phone. She's apologizing. I'm so sorry. It must have been hell on you. Oh, I had wow. no idea that you were my brother. And she felt terrible for, you know, not responding to her own brother and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. Wow. And to find out the connections our mother had with adoption after she relinquished me Uh were were really quite profound, too. My my little sister's best friend is adopted. Okay. And uh, they grew up together. They played together. Mom always knew that her friend was adopted. Uh And... um, my mom treated this person like a goddess. Aww. She might have treated my sister's best friend better than she treated my sister. <laughs> right. And uh, you know, her friend had her own key to the house. She used to practically live there all the time. And um, and that was the first thing she said. She was like, she was, you know, Sherry's mother always treated me like I was her own. And she knew I was adopted and we talked about it all of the time. Just, and now those conversations make sense. Yeah. Just because when I was about 17 years old, I was really mad. I wanted to run away from home. And she was, I was really mad at my birth mother saying, how could you ever possibly give away your own child? Aww. And my mother said to her, you don't know unless you're in those shoes. Right. She said, and you can't judge people. You just, you know, unless you're that person, you, you just can't know. And... And, and so this girl never forgot that. And um, to this day, you know, she said to me, she was like, she was, now I understand why your mom said what she said. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like your your birth mother's family has really taken you in, for the most part, as, as one of their own. They have. You know, they don't really have much choice. In. This is a massively large family. <laughs> there are so 14 many 14 children, yeah. Yeah, they have an annual summer reunion. It's a big family picnic at my Uncle Carl's farm. And usually between 90 and 100 people there. Um, three, sometimes four generations are there at this thing. Um, they never acted differently towards me. They acted like I had only stepped out for 48 years. They never uh, they never really acted like I was a stranger or an outsider mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, we all knew each other on Facebook long before we met in person. Um, was, I think two weeks after after I contacted them that I drove down there for a day and I got to meet them all in person and um, you know it was interesting it was interesting I um, I went to my Aunt Shirley's house Uncle Bill was still alive and they were in there watching Wheel of Fortune or no um, what's the one uh, Price is Right <laughs> and so they're watching Price is Right and that kind of struck me as funny because you know I occasionally watch that one and uh, we go in and we're talking and um, Aunt Shirley's standing there she's like, I just have to look at you and she's like, I just need to look at you so she's standing there with her arms around me she's only about 5 foot tall, I'm six one, <laughs> and so she's she's looking up at me it almost looked like a, a prom picture because you know she's gazing up at me right. <laughs> on her shoulder and um, she had a lot of questions 
for me. Mm-hmm. And that was when it really hit me how how corrupt adoption is. Yeah. Um, how many lies are really involved in adoption? When um, she was with, how was it for you to be raised an only child in such a wealthy family of these professional, well-educated parents who just could never have a baby? And I said, well, that beats the hell out of me because my parents were dirt poor. I was in foster care for four years, and I'm the youngest of three. Right. And she's like, and she was devastated to find that out. I mean, she was very devastated to find that out, and uh, because they had been told a whole different story. Wow. Than um, than what was true. And the, they were told that my parents were in their mid to late twenties, that they were infertile. Mm-hmm. But they were college-educated professionals who had a good, solid income. Wow. That's not true at all. Right. I, my dad was 52 when I was adopted. My mom was in her early 40s. My mom was uneducated. She had never had worked any kind of a job to speak of. My dad was a factory worker who made at the best in his life. In 1973, the best he made was $2.70 an hour. Um, we were poor. I mean, we were very, very, very poor. They weren't fertile. My brother's 20 years older than I am. My sister's 10 years older than I am. And so um, there were some whoppers told. Right. Yeah. My my adoptive parents were also lied to. They were told that my birth mother was a 21-year-old college student who relinquished me so that she could go on with her life, finish her degree, and continue you know, working as a professional and what she wanted to do with her life. Mm-hmm. That was a crock, too. My, my mom dropped out of high school when she was 15, lived with my aunt uncle. And yeah, she was 21 when she had me, so she was college-aged. Mm-hmm. She was not a college student at all. Right. She was a nanny. So plenty of lies there. And I knew people lied, and I knew caseworkers lied, and I knew all that stuff from the other adoptees I had met, um, from the political activism that I was involved in, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it hadn't hit home until then when I realized that my history was also based on lies. Right. And it was bad enough that my adoptive parents lied to me about my history, but to find out that my history itself was a big lie. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you look at it in the end, I mean, it, it doesn't really impact who you are, but it does impact who you think you are. Right. Um, and that's a lot to process. The day because right after, right after I told Aunt Shirley and Uncle Bill, you know, my true upbringing, they were shocked. And I said, now, I got some questions about my mom that maybe you can clear up for me. Um, and I mentioned, you know, my paperwork said that she was a college student. Uncle Bill, at college? Christ, she didn't finish high school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had those raspy old man cigar smoking voices, you know. Right. And uh, I said, really? He goes, yeah, your mom couldn't stand school. You know, she couldn't get out of there. She, was, she left right after the 10th grade. She couldn't get out of there fast enough. And uh, right. <laughs> it was like, wow. <laughs> you know? So uh, as we wrap up here, because we're almost out of time, I am still in 2018 seeing adoptive parents asking the question, should I tell my child they are adopted? So as someone who was who found out as an adult, what, what do you want to say to those people? They need to tell them the day they bring them home from the hospital or the day that the caseworker drops them off at their house. Mm-hmm. And you need to discuss it then, and you, need, and you need to discuss it consistently ever since then. This is a topic that you never stop assuring the adopted kid about. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to know 
if they don't know and you don't want them to know, eventually they're going to know. Right. Eventually, you know, these secrets have ways to come out, especially now with DNA testing. Back, back 12 years ago or 11 years ago when I found out, DNA tests were for the elite. They were expensive. Right. And um, I had my test done. At the same time, I had my um, my spinal cord injury. The uh, the birth moms on Facebook took up a fundraiser for me to give me a DNA test. Mm-hmm. So I'd have kind of a get well present. They wanted to thank me for the help I'd given other people, for right. the activism and all that kind of stuff. So I got a DNA test. And it was helpful. And later on, it did help confirm Mm-hmm. My uh, my birth family, but it didn't lead me to my birth family, but it did confirm them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to find out, no matter how much both our, our adoptive families pull, we're going to find out eventually. Yeah. I spoke quite a few years ago um, at a conference at the Hillside Adoption Agency here in Rochester, New York. And one of the things I was talking about was transparency and adoption uh-huh. through the point of view of being a late discovery adoptee. And it was all adoptive parents in the room, as well as like one of the, one of the administrators from the uh, Danny Thomas Foundation was there, mm-hmm. uh, a couple other big wigs like that from different adoption agencies around the country. And I showed a couple of clips from one of Gene Strauss's film. And um, that, got some, that got some tears flowing around the room, which was my intention. Uh-huh. And then I dropped my bomb about being a late discovery adoptee. Uh-huh. And so while I've got all these weeping adoptive parents in the room, <laughs> um, the one gentleman says to me, I mean, and this guy's crying hard, uh-huh. and he says to me, I have two daughters at home that are adopted. One is eight years old and the other one is 10 years old. Uh-huh. When is the best time to tell them they're adopted? Oh my I God. looked at them right in the eye and I said, eight and ten years ago yes yeah and I said, that, that would have been the best time but i'll be honest with you it's not too late right now do it now and said, <laughs> no yeah and i said i would do it tonight yes and uh, his, and his wife turned white i mean she turned as white as a ghost and uh, i said you're gonna do it tonight and i said i think you ought to do it um as soon as you get home mm-hmm. um if your girls were here with you today i'd do it here and uh and i sat with you and they said, no, they're, they're with a sitter today. I said, then when you get home, you're going to take, you're going to pick up a pizza on your way home. You're going to pick up a pizza, a couple of fun DVDs. You're going to have a family night. You're going to play games. And oh, by the way, kids, we have something really important we got to tell you. And I said, you can Google up how to tell your adopted kid that. And I said, there are a ton of experts walking around this conference, therapists, mm-hmm. social workers who will tell you what to say. And I said, but it ends tonight. <laughs> and they both, they both agreed. And they're, mm-hmm. they're standing there just, bawling mm-hmm. and um they both gave me a big hugs and they left i i don't know who they were and i'm hoping that they follow through okay. you know it was the right thing to do right. yeah well that's incredible what a crazy story yes and th- thank you for well, being uh, willing to share with us you can contact the podcast at broke broken podcast at gmail.com the broken broken podcast can be found on twitter at broke broken show on instagram and facebook at broke broken podcast